0: far as they can go. My kids are rascals, though, Um, and I think they learned this from me, but they do this thing where they say, I love you this much, (laughs) and they try to not touch. They get as close as they can without touching their fingers, so we share a nice little laugh um, after that, Um, but then um, we start continuing the game, but using our words, describing places that are so far as high, I love you as high as a mountain. Um, as deep as the sea, right? One, one that I like to say a lot, we got from a book, I Love You to the Moon and Back. Um, so that's kind of how we talk to each other at times with people um, that we love very dearly. Um, we describe a great distance, a great uh, a journey to, to go from that we could never go ourselves. There's a measure of love, I think, that just we, we earthlings have for each other that, Um, It's hard to describe with words, and we labor to compare it to some kind of far distance, and it just never seems to be enough. Um, God does this, you know, in Scripture, and I love it when he does it. I think he he means it a little more literally, though, than what I mean it, because we read in places, for example, like Jeremiah chapter 31, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I loved you with an everlasting... You can't beat that. right? That's like saying infinity. You know, like um, um, It's almost like God's cheating. There's no distance greater. <laughs> I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with unfailing... We could just kind of roll that around in our minds all day. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I look at my life and I know I don't know that I'm worth that considering... Just the chaos of my own mind, the rebellion of my own heart, all the things. You know, like I'm not saying I'm all bad. I've, I, you know, I've been good sometimes. You know, but, but I know like if, if I'm going to earn that love, I don't, I don't pass. I don't make the grade. I don't earn it. But yet there it is. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with an unfailing kindness. How about Isaiah chapter 41? I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. I love you to the moon and back. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Oh, friends, if you are sensing some kind of inner rejection, either from yourself or from someone else, please remember this verse that in Christ, I have called you, you are my servant, I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. Wow. Wow. That's a really amazing verse to trip over after we've done something very heinous, isn't it? When we've kind of lived in this anger, wretchedness, for maybe months on end. To kind of bump into that Bible verse is quite sobering. I took you from the ends of the earth. I found you from its farthest corners. I called you. I said, you are my servant. I declare this. Not the world, not your boss, not your family. Here's what I announce. You're my servant, I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. Fantastic. God is uh, presenting, as ha- presented as having a love so great for His people that He will go any lengths, travel any distance, to find and to rescue and to love those whom He has called and chosen. Fantastic, right? Amen. We see this, probably the greatest example of this in Scripture is in Philippians chapter 2, speaking of what Christ did. Who being in very nature God, existing as God, living in the heavenlies, having no creator himself, created all things visible visible, visible and invisible. This one being in very nature God himself, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took a great journey, not only from heaven to earth, but from God to man. Isn't that fantastic? And all because he loves us. All because he loves us. God in Christ traveled from heaven to earth, took a lesser place, and died for us because he loves us. I'm reminded of a a book that my wife turned me on to recently that I had never read um, called The Odyssey. Have you heard of this? Homer's Odyssey. Um, There's two parts, The Iliad and The Odyssey. The Iliad's about the Trojan War and The Odyssey is about one of the great, I believe, generals and soldiers in the Trojan War. The war's over and now he's got to take this this Odyssey home, this trip um, home to to his wife and to his family. Um, and back home, if you've ever read the book, his wife remains faithful to him. All of these kind of twisted, evil, and perverted suitors are trying to convince her, your husband's not coming back for you, why don't you just marry me, right? Um, and that's, that's basically what the book's about. So, ho- uh, so Odysseus travels home, escaping death by sea and by land from the gods, from the Cyclops thing that he pretty much, I think, um, throws a spear in his eye. Um, (laughs) The only eye he had, thanks a lot. And at the end, he just takes care of all of those evil suitors and gets his wife back and returns home. But friends, um, as fascinating a love story as that is, and as an adventure that is, there's there's a real Odysseus, there's a better one. His name is Jesus. He loves us to the moon and back. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus said this. Oh, and friends, if you've lost a loved one in Christ, remember this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. Oh, praise God. Jesus, the real Odysseus, is coming back, preparing a place for us. Fantastic. You see, we can be going through a lot right now, but just kind of remember that it will end one day and Jesus will return, the trumpets will sound, and Christ will dry your tears, and you'll be home, your real home. I um. often tell people um, that, that we're talking about, you know, we're getting older now and stuff, and um, thinking about those things, and you know, you might be in your getting to your late 30s like me, or maybe you're in your 40s or 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. Right, so we're kind of talking about how life is fast, and you know, you're know you getting old and tired, and usually I, tr- I try to transition the talk, um, if it's with a Christian, to like, well, you're just about to be born. You're not old. You're just in the ninth month. <laughs> Amen? Right? You're about to be born. This was, this was labor, <laughs> and you're about to be born into the eternal kingdom as God's children. Amen? a good one. <laughs> um, we're in a passage this morning that's popularly referred to as the Table of Nations. It includes a lot of complicated, tongue-twisting names um, in chapter 10. It's the fourth book of Genesis. Now, your Bibles aren't arranged like that, but the original Genesis basically had four, uh, 10 chapters. These chapters were separated by statements like, this is the generation of. Right? So those are basically the ten segments of the original Genesis and how the author um, wrote this book, which was Moses. So we're in the fourth genealogy, basically the fourth book. It's the account or the genealogy of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, the, first, the first genealogy, if you recall, was in chapter 2. It was in the, of the heavens and the earth. And then in chapter 5, it's of Adam's descendants. And then in chapter 6, it's of Noah's. And now we're entering into Shem, Ham, and Japheth's descendants. These were the sons of Noah who were delivered safely through the flood with Noah um, as the flood waters receded. They began to populate the earth, and this is the account of that population. <clears throat> the descendants of Adam, if, as you recall, were so wicked that God destroyed them all except Noah and his family, and the world is now about to be populated by these three boys and their progeny. Uh, God's command in in Eden is now about to take form. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And that's what we see happening in Genesis chapter 10. From these three families come all the nations of the world, which is uh, very interesting to think about. According to scripture, all the nations of the world, our current world, come from these three boys. From these the nations spread out, this is from our text, from these the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Okay, That's kind of like the basic summary statement of how we got from there to here (laughs) Um, today. From Noah and his sons, we're told about the immediate population of what we today would call Western Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. So in other words... All of those names that Heather read, the the immediate context, not today, but then, uh, at that time, that would have been Western Europe, the Middle East, and Northern Africa. Obviously, they didn't call that at the time, but just so you have an idea of what I'm talking about, that's where they settled, and that's what your map is representing that we handed out. And over the centuries, of course, these people groups continue um, to travel and to spread to the Far East, Southern Africa, and all the way to the Americas. And there's debate uh, as far as what clans went where, and that's not really the point this morning, but they began to spread all over the world. <clears throat> in Genesis 10, 70 nations and people groups are mentioned. Now, in Scripture, 70 is a, is a number that's describing a, a certain amount of completion, right? 7, 70, th- these kinds of numbers, it's a completed type of group. So it's this word is representing the completed mass of all human government. Now what's very interesting though, if you really are careful to look through this table of nations and all of these 70 nations, there's one nation that's shockingly not mentioned at all, and it's Israel. Israel. Now in case you didn't know 90% maybe even more of the Bible of the Old Testament Bible is about that nation. But in this table of nations, supposedly a complete look at all the nations of the earth that would, that would come through them even. Israel's not even on the list. They didn't make the cut. That's, that is shocking. Um, and it's intentional too, and we'll get into that more later. This morning, um, though our text might seem maybe a little bit dry and tricky uh, to read through, I want to demonstrate how this passage makes clear just how far God's love reaches. Just how far his love reaches. You see, we, we all on the surface might see a list of nations and names. But this is demonstrating something much deeper than simply a laundry list of names. It's demonstrating the magnificent love of our God. And I want to look at this in three headings, spreading, worshiping, and gathering. Spreading, worshiping, and gathering. So let's look at spreading. Recall what God commanded. We mentioned this a little bit already, Adam and Eve from the beginning. It says in Genesis chapter 2, God blessed them, excuse me, is it chapter 1? God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then chaos, they they rebel against God, chaos ensues and God sends the flood. But God again, even after the flood, says the same thing in our text. um, Genesis chapter 10, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 9, not our text, verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. In spite of man's heart, in spite of the sinful proclivities that man has, God, God's command remains the same. His instruction has not changed. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Only now, it's more like Bizarro Man is filling the earth and subduing it. Right? But you, you guys, guys know the difference between Superman and Bizarro Superman, if you look at comics at all. <clears throat> Bizarro Superman is like the opposite of Superman. He's evil, Superman's good, etc. But it's like bizarro man's filling the earth. Not, not regular man, not man who, is, who worships God, who goes out of obedience to God, out of glory to God, d- does he spread and is fruitful and multiplies. Instead, this bizarro man, curved in on himself, is doing it for his own glory, for his own self-worth, and for his own praise. It reminds me of a passage that I've read to you in the past from Exodus chapter 33, when um, the people of Israel are waiting for Moses on Mount Sinai and decide to build an idol, because he's taking too long. It says, "Then the Lord said to Moses, "Leave this place you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised I, the land I promised, on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants." I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. I'll give you everything I promised. I'll give you the promised land, but you don't get me. Because you don't want me. You built your own God. It's a self-inflicting judgment. And Moses, the story goes, intercedes, and that doesn't happen. But friends, in Genesis chapter 10, that's exactly what's happening. We, what seems in Genesis 10 to be a sort of obedient spreading to the ends of the earth through Noah's sons is actually a stiff-necked community that has no distinguishing mark of God's presence at all. These nations, they're founded far away from God's presence. They found them on their own hubris, on their own pride and self-glory. Now imagine, imagine <clears throat> amassing a world population and multiple human governments bent on their own glory over the Lord's. Mix in a little bit of good and bad, and you sort of get the world we live in, don't we? Friends, aren't these the kings and the pharaohs and Caesars? that believe themselves to be gods, that desired to spread their own kingdom all to the ends of the earth so that they might be the king, right? We see that all throughout human history. The Egyptians did it, the Assyrians did it, the Babylonians did it, the Persians did it, the Greeks did it, the Romans did it, the French did it, and the English. This is not an ancient thing, it's a modern thing as well. The planet continually cycles through the hubris, the pride of some ruler who is trying to eliminate God so that he can be God. In this table of nations, it looks innocent enough, but underneath it comes Genesis chapter 11, which will be in next week, which is the Tower of Babel. You see, this spreading leads to an actual gathering for human exaltation. Underneath it is Babel. Underneath it proceeds all human rulers bent on world domination from Nebuchadnezzar to Alexander the Great to Julius Caesar to Napoleon to Adolf Hitler. All sort of thinking that they had some divine right to rule this earth. You see, friends, it might seem like an innocent enough sort of spreading, but this is the motivation in the spreading. It's self glory. It's not the glory of God in Christ, you see? It's not to make his name and his fame known, it's to make our own known. <clears throat> and civilizations and human governments since this moment have had to live out the tension of a system of freedom versus tyranny, of being served to being dominated. So all the sons of Noah do as God commands, and they spread. Now, you should have received a map, like I just said. Um, I hope that you have it. It's going to be on the screen, and that's exactly why I gave you a copy, because you can't read any of that. Um, Our screens are a little too small, so I wanted to give you a copy so you could actually read it and consider it. Um, I wanted you to visualize where these folks ended up, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. <clears throat> I wanted you to be able to kind of see it on, on paper in our world. So there's, they're being fruitful, and they're multiplying, just as God commanded. And they're spreading, and this is the initial spreading that we see probably for the first about 1,000 years of their spread. <clears throat> You'll note the sons of Ham in red. And you can kind of tell that they're about in northern, northeastern Africa, Saudi Arabia, where like modern-day Iran is. You can see... Um, um, the cast—I don't know if you, how how good you guys are with geography, but like those—if um, if you see the, the the Mediterranean Sea, you guys at least know what that one is, right? The Mediterranean Sea. Above it, um, there's another sea. It kind of looks like a shoe. You see that? That's the Black Sea. No- Noel learned it as the the Black Boot Sea, and that's going to help you. To to the east, you're going to see the friendliest sea of all, Caspian, the friendly sea. Um, Kind of looks like a ghost a little, right? So you got the Black Sea. You, know, you guys are going to forget you laughing at me, but now you're going to know these for the rest of your lives. Um, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea. Um, so if you're at the Caspian Sea and you go south and you run into that alien-looking thing, um, that's the Persian Gulf, right? And in between, that's modern-day Iran. So if you notice, Ham in red is going uh, to where? He's starting to, to go to North Africa, Northeast Africa, to Saudi Arabia to, to um, Iran and these places. Uh, Japheth is, is uh, called a sea people, and you can see why, because they're traveling northwest, um, which would be like Eastern Europe. So they're in Turkey and Greece, and one of them was a mistake right above the Black Boot Sea. Um, I, put, I put Magog in Turkey. He should be above, uh, above the Black Sea because um, people consider him to having, having traveled to Russia, and um, that's where the modern Russians come from. Okay, so you can see Japheth, and now, now you see uh, Shem. The, the, the sons of Shem in green are kind of staying in the Middle East, in Palestine, a little bit. There's some in Arabia, some in Iran, right? They're, they're, but, but they're kind of centrally located. So that's kind of where, um, so to speak, these people, um, these nations ended up. Now, the, the children of Shem, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Shem, um, that's where we get Semitic, right? You, you've heard anti Semitic. Because the children of Abraham were the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, right? So Abraham had sons. One of, their, one of his sons was Jacob, who and Jacob, Jacob's name was turned changed to Israel, who had twelve sons. Well, well, Jacob's great-great grandpappy was Shem. It was not Japheth. It was not Ham. That's why they're called the Semites. Does that make sense? Okay? So you see them, how they've gathered. They're, they're kind of on the map there, and hopefully that starts to make, help you make a little sense of things as, to, as far as where they are located. <clears throat> where you see the name Cush um, on the map, it's in red. It's between the Persian Gulf and Caspian, the friendly sea there. You see Cush, Nimrod, Babylon. You see all that? Um, where you see that, that name Cush in red, this is actually believed right about this location um, is where scholars, secular scholars, co- what they call the cradle of civilization. They believe that all civilization had its origin right there. So all other civilizations eventually migrated out of there to the Far East and to the Far West. Okay? This is complementing, by the way, what Scripture teaches us right in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, because this is where they were. They initially were right around. That greenish reddish area in the Middle East, there in in Mesopotamia. They started complex urban centers, um, and it became known as Mesopotamia. The ancient cities of Nineveh and Babylon were located here. All these diversities of nations spring from Noah's sons after the flood, and what seems to also complement a certain unity. You see, friends, we're seeing a lot of names. And by the way, that's not 70. I didn't put them all up there. I put some of them, right? So if I put them all, it would be a lot busier up there. But what's interesting is that this table of nations, while there's a lot of names, it, all, it, it sort of implies a unity because they all came from Noah. There's a connection. There's a familial relation that each of these people have, one with the other. This vast population and diversity of nation and culture all springing from one man, Noah, and his his three sons. And it emphasizes not just the family line, but their familial unity. Now this is very important in our world today, friends, because if this is true, and I believe it is, that means on a certain level, all human beings are relatives. We all have a familial bond, a heritage that we can trace back to each other. So congratulations, you married your second to third mother's cousin, okay? (laughs) You go back far enough, you married a relative. Um. (laughs) The spreading wasn't simply familial, though. It was also governmental. We have nations represented in this. It's not emphasizing just that people were born, but that nations and governments and rulers were established. And the crown jewel, at least in Genesis 10... Of these go- governors is named. His name is Nimrod. He's the son of Ham. Nimrod is called a mighty warrior and hunter who built super cities and superpowers. Nimrod is credited with the building of Babylon, Nineveh, and the nations of Babylonia, Assyria, and Persia, which, if you didn't know, were the, super pow- were the varied superpowers of the ancient Near East. They were trading places, they were trading hands all throughout. And after they, after they declined, who, who rose up to the superpower challenge? Well, it was the Greeks, right? And then it was the Romans. And where are they? They're in blue. You see, so friends, the nations came, the greatest nations came from these three boys. Fill the earth and subdue it. Check. <laughs> they, they did that. They got it done. But these are not just spreading nations. They're worshipping nations, number two. They're not just spreading nations, they're worshipping nations. And this is where they get into trouble, and where you and I get into trouble. These city and nations were not monuments to the glory of God, but the glory, the pride, the hubris of man. We're going to see that in a microcosm next week at the building of the Tower of Babel. Not built for the glory of God, but for the glory of man. You know that the, I believe it was the Egyptians had a temple too, like the Jews had a temple? And you know how God rested in the inner tent of the Jewish temple? Guess who was in the inner tent of the Egyptian temple? The Pharaoh. Because the Pharaoh said, I'm God. So they're spreading as a monument to human prowess, human ingenuity, human strength it's continuing the lie of satan which said you will not die you'll be like god you don't need god in your temple you go in there you'll be fine to be like him to be above him to be him you see it's a worshiping community but they're not worshiping god they're worshiping idols they're worshiping man do you know that satan tempted jesus with this Did you know that? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. So their spreading was an idolatrous spreading. Their establishing of human governments was a form of pride and self-worship. And let's bring up the archetype of this Nimrod again. This is what the text says, the easy part that, that I saved for me. Um, <laughs> reads in Genesis 10. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his, king, of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kelna, and Shinar. From the land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Resin, which is between Ni- Nineveh and Kala, It says a lot, okay? But it's basically saying that from Nimrod came Babylon, came Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, right? Who what nations destroyed Israel twice? These. Nimrod's kids. That's telling me, and by the way, a lot of people believe that uh, that that his philosophy had a lot to do with the building of the Tower of Babel. Friends, that's telling me of the hubris, of the pride that we often go out with. What seems innocent enough, right, it doesn't seem to say anything bad here about Nimrod. He was a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter, before the Lord. Good job, guy. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the first centers of kingdom. It doesn't seem like he's really getting rebuked here. But, but if you know the uh, um, original language, it says Nimrod grew to be a mighty warrior. What he accomplished, kind of buried in this language, he accomplished by aggression and violence. You see? In Hebrew, the word warrior means tyrant. An absolute ruler unrestrained by law. You see, the Bible's description of Nimrod seems kind of innocent, but it's not. The Bible describes Nimrod as an aggressive tyrant who refused to submit to the law of God. And all of his building, all of his nation building and government building and city building was built with that philosophy. What appears to be an innocent record of a people simply spreading out as God instructed is so much more. Do you see that now? It's a spreading without God, like we saw in Exodus 33. Yeah. And friends, all of us in this room, we might kind of say, like, wow, yeah, those, those guys were scumbags. I'm so glad I'm not like that. <laughs> right? But friends, aren't we daily tempted to do the same in subtle ways? We marry, we build, we create, we pro- get promoted. To prove ourselves, to demonstrate our prowess, to feel as if we're loved. We do all of these things so that we can have a sort of power, that we can prove our worth and justify our existence. Is that no less or no different from what's happening here? Friend, if we bear the weight of heightened insecurity or worthlessness, See, so I, I read um, an article the other day about a, a famous doctor, I believe it was. Um, I forgot to write it down, but I, rem- I recall reading about this famous doctor who, who just discovered all these wonderful things and helped so many people. At the end of his life, he wrote, my, my life is hardly worth mentioning. I haven't done a thing. How can you accomplish so much and still make that judgment about yourself? It was suggested in this book that I was reading that insecurity, while at times seems humble, is often pride. Because when we feel insecurity or worthlessness, we either, one of two things is happening. We either don't realize who God has made us and the value that comes with that. Or we do realize it, but it's not enough. You see, because we're still not him. You see, and insecurity can come when you come face to face with that fact. That as hard as you try, you're not God. So you feel like you failed. You feel like you're worthless because you just didn't do enough. You didn't beat the other guy. Another person broke your record or made more money. So you feel worthless because you didn't accomplish quite enough, isn't that a form of pride? We often mistake poor self-esteem with humility, but poor self-esteem can come quite from the opposite place. We realize we're not the center of the earth, we're not the prize, we're not the ultimate, but we sit under the center's wing, and he gets the applause and we don't, and we don't like it. But you know what humility does? It simply accepts who we are with all of our implied limits. And our value is determined based on our creator and not on our accomplishments. You see, that's humility. Humility is not self-demeaning. It's quite the opposite. It's enjoying who God has made you to be. Not priding yourself in what you've done. You see, there's a big difference there. Pride wants more than what we are. It wants more. It refuses to acknowledge that we need God and his salvation. So we build families, we build cities, we create, we innovate, we make lots of money, we organize our gardens and paint our houses, we have children and grandchildren, all for our own ego. It's self-worth, it's self-worship. And we'll always try to destroy anything that gets in the way of that, that sort of reminds us that we have limits. And most of all, who do we try, try to destroy? God himself, the Savior. The Savior is a reminder that we're not him, that we can't save ourselves and that we need him. All the sons of Noah aimed to do this. Can you put that map back on the screen? All the sons of Noah aimed to do this. You say, okay, the sons of Ham, who did they try to take out primarily in Scripture? Israel, right? That's, you get the Canaanites in there, you get Egypt, all of these. All, so, all in red, you get Assyria and Babylon. Both of them, destro- one destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, the other des- destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel. All of that red. They were constant antagonists towards the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. You see David fighting Goliath, the Philistines, all of this, right? Well, what about the New Testament? Well, what about the birth of Christ? Well, that's the sons of Shem, isn't it? From the sons of Shem come the Israelites who killed Christ. You think, oh, well, the promise was given to, to Shem that a Savior would come. Surely they'll love him. Surely they'll accept him. These guys must be, the, the green guys must be the good guys, Right? Eh, Wrong. From them come the murder of the Messiah. Well, what about Japheth? Maybe he he was the oldest, the Bible says. Maybe he had some sense. Well, when it was his turn, he partnered with the Israelites to kill Jesus. And then when the Israelites were done, they went after the church. With all the Romans and the Greek persecutions of the early church. You see, all three sons of Noah were hell-bent on destroying the Savior. All of them were. And friends, before Christ came to us, you might not have worded it like that, but we were doing the same by passively rejecting him, saying, I don't need him. I need me. I can save myself. I'm good enough. You see? What's clear from this table of nations is that the very people that God promised not to destroy with a flood was now spreading and occupying the world for their own glory and would then decide, if they could, to destroy God himself. Isn't that irony? I will never again destroy the peoples of the earth and these same people from the west to the east and north to the south have aimed to, to destroy the Messiah and his people. Millennia's after, sons of Noah, still without God, making a name for ourselves, but here's the good news. In this spreading, in this going out to the ends of the earth, there is an implied gathering, a blessing, a salvation. Recall that I mentioned one nation, remember, shockingly absent. Israel is not in the table of nations. How could it be? The nations on their own certainly speak of a pride in a doom being without God. And the spreading also demonstrates, though, God's blessing. Now, how does it do that? Because it represents the nations of one blood, multiplying under God's blessing as distinct tribes and nations. There is a clear concern for all people, even in their rebellion, not just Israel, You see, there's a unity of familial relation in this list. And what's being demonstrated here is that God loves all these people without end to the ends of the earth. It's it's the reason Israel is not mentioned because God does not just love Israel. He loves all peoples and he used Israel to save all peoples. You see, he used Israel... To save Israel. Because even Israel would need to confess the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. So Israel's special place is not because they're special. It's because they were used to bring the Savior that would go to the ends of these rebellious nations and save them. The nations, said one, are the Lord's, whether they acknowledge him or not, and Israel is part of one world governed by God. And the reason why Israel is not in this table is to illustrate that before Abraham was there, an array of peoples and nations were lost without God that God loved and determined to rescue. Isn't that fantastic? What's really interesting in Scripture is that God tells us to go, to spread, to go to the ends of the earth and be fruitful and multiply. But then when it talks about his church, it talks about him gathering them, calling them out from this, almost like a reversal going on here well it's because he is calling out from these people and then sending them out again what his kingdom is not nimrod's kingdom not babylon's kingdom or assyria's or the united states his kingdom to go into the ends of the earth it's from these nations all of them that god gathers his kingdom and builds his city amen revelation chapter 9 reads this. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. I'm sorry, put up that map again. (laughs) After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb oh my goodness consider this consider consider what this means right you kind of have like this circle above here right and they're all kind of pointing in to destroy jesus and his people cuz jesus kind of imagine visualize jesus being at the center of all that all of these enemies of christ bent on destroying him christ actually saves them and puts, him, puts them in his kingdom. Cush and Nimrod, the Babylonians and Assyrians, the Egyptians. These guys were scumbags. These guys were evil people that tried to destroy Israel and Jesus and the church. And it continues to this day. But the Bible's promise is that around the throne of God are people from all of these nations. Praise God that that, that grace reaches to that length that that love reaches to you and to me. Not just to the Israelites or the Canaanites or the, or the Libyans or the Nubians. It goes to the ends of the earth without exception. So all of these antagonist nations, aiming to wipe out, wipe out Israel like, the, like, like Ham and Jesus like Shem and then his church like Japheth, some from all of these nations are gathered to occupy and fill again his eternal city. Amen? Friends, where is your citizenship? Are you a Babylonian? Are you a Hamite? Are you a Shemite? Are you, a J- are, you, are you from, right? What family are you derived from? Where is your citizenship, friends? Is it the city of man or is it the city of God? Come by faith to Him. I hope this morning, if there is any antagonism or fear In your wandering, I pray that it can be transformed to faith in Christ. Because he's there. Don't we live in a fallen and broken world and system? Nimrod cities and history has had its day. They broke the back of the Israelites. They broke the back of Jesus himself. But friends, he is coming back. He is alive. The city of man continues with its wanderings and with its building and with its flexing of its muscles and with its breaking. Yet there remains a promise to us that our covenant-keeping God is more powerful than all of the powers of life. Amen? uh, Noah, never again will I destroy the world, the nations of this earth with a flood. Instead, through your offspring, I will crush the head of Satan. Isn't that fantastic? And all this, why? Because he loves us to the moon and back. You see, Spain wasn't too far. Right, The Far East and Japan, the United States and down. It's not too far. I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. And I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. How far were we when Christ called us? Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, that no matter how far we are from you, and that, that might not be a, certainly isn't a geographical distance, but our hearts we hear those sweet words I love you I've chosen you come to me friends if that's you this morning come to Christ step out of the city of man and step into the city of Christ it's better God we thank you that you love us to the moon and back We pray, God, that tonight, if anyone doesn't know you, this morning, if if anyone doesn't know you, that they would come by faith